invite you to open back up to Hebrews chapter 1. When you found it, let's bow together and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Our God and Father, the very passage before us was written that we might stand in awe of this Jesus in whom you have spoken in these last days, whom you have appointed heir of all things, through whom you created the world. This Jesus who is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power. This Jesus, who having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a name more excellent than they. I ask this morning, as Gordon asked at the beginning, for ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to comprehend the glory of the Son of God. Father, we come this morning like Martha, worrying ourselves about many things. But right now, only one thing is needful. So make us like Mary this morning. Sitting at the feet of this Jesus, before whom the angels fall flat on their faces, worshiping Him. Would you grant this by the power of your Spirit, we ask, to the glory of the name of your only begotten Son, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all of God's people said, Well, unless you grew up in a church which sang hymns, you likely don't recognize the title to this morning's sermon. It comes from the second line of Edward Perrinet's famous hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. The first stanza of that song, which we will sing at the conclusion of this message, goes like this, All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall flat on their faces, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. The image which that hymn evokes is that of a coronation. Jesus Christ is seated upon his throne. The angels of God are prostrated before him on their faces in worship and the sovereign crown of glory is placed upon his head as he is declared to be Lord and King of everything which he has made. And the scene captured by that hymn is the very scene that is captured for us in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. The eternal Son of God through whom the world was created and who sustains all things by the word of his power, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, who took on flesh and humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When he had made purification for sins upon that cross, 
He was raised again from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father and took His seat next to the majesty on high. It's a glorious scene that forms the background then for today's passage where immediately following then, the author states that having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a name more excellent than they. And what follows over the next ten verses is a tightly reasoned biblical defense for the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels of God. The author, like the hymn writer, is determined that we would see this Jesus, the exalted Son of God, seated upon His glorious throne with the angels surrounding Him in worship. And he wants us to picture in our minds these two positions, okay? That of the exalted Son of God and that of the subservient angels of God. Because he wants us to see that the gap between the glory of the worshipers and the glory of the one who is worshipped is infinite. They could not be more separated in their inherent glory than is the Son of God from the angels of God. But why? Why does the author want us to know this? Why is he so concerned with establishing the supremacy of Christ over the angels? Was the congregation to which he is writing tempted to worship angels? Or maybe to assign to them a place of reverence or importance beyond what they deserve? Maybe even above that of God's own Messiah? Well, maybe. There is some evidence in first century Judaism that they were assigning a a higher place of significance to the angels than was biblically warranted. They had an unhealthy degree of, of reverence and an unhealthy preoccupation with the angelic host. There's evidence of that latent in in the Judaism of which he was raised and to which he writes. Even in the New Testament, there is evidence that the early church may have been tempted to the angels of God. It appears, or to worship the angels of God. It appears that Paul is writing against that error, for instance, in Colossians chapter 2 and and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. But I think why the author, immediately after this soaring introduction, goes into this defense of the superiority of Christ over the angels goes a little bit deeper than just that his church may have been tempted to worship angels. That may may or may not have been true, but I know that this is true. He wants us to see that the revelation given through the angels is so inferior to the revelation given through the Son, so that there is no reason on earth or in heaven why somebody would turn away from the superior and return to the inferior. If we understand that the new covenant was given through this this Jesus, this Son of God whom the angels worship, then how could anyone, them or, or us, return back to the old covenant law that was given through the angels? The Son is so far superior to the angels, and the new covenant gospel given in the Son is so far superior to the old covenant law given through the angels. That's his point. That's his concern. He's got a church of people who are tempted to go back to the temple and tempted to return to the sacrifices 
and tempted to feel the need for the old covenant priesthood. And he is writing to say, don't go back. Don't go back. We have a, we have a greater revelation because we have a greater revealer. We have a greater revelation because we have a great Son of God who is exalted far above the angels. In the Old Testament, the angels were the supreme agents of revelation. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and the author of Hebrews here at the beginning of chapter 2 all make the claim that the Old Covenant law was given through the mediation of angels. But that the New Covenant gospel is revealed through Christ. And the danger which the author of Hebrews is writing to address, the temptation faced by the congregation that's receiving this letter from him, was to turn away from Christ in the new covenant and to return back to the old covenant as given through angels with its temple and its priesthood and its sacrifices and its law. And so before he warns them against doing that, which he's going to do in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How how shall we escape who neglect so great a salvation? Before he gets to the warning, he needs to build the warning on a strong foundation. And so he's going to turn to the Old Testament itself, and he's going to pull seven quotations from the Old Testament in order to prove that even the Old Testament viewed the Messiah who was to come as of a greater status than the angels of God, and therefore the new covenant given in Him is of greater status than the old covenant given through them. That's where he's headed. In this week's passage, he is establishing the superiority of Jesus as a superior messenger with a superior message than the message which was brought to Israel through the angels. And in next week's passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the author is going to warn the congregation of the deadly peril of turning away from the superior and returning to the inferior. All right, so that's the background. That's what's going on in today's passage. But I think it raises a further question, and that's the question of relevance. Because I doubt whether there are many of you, maybe even none of you, who are tempted to worship angels. And I don't know of any of you who come from a Jewish background that you would be tempted to long for the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the old covenant law. So why why pay attention to a sermon whose main point, whose only point, is to convince you that Jesus is greater than the angels and the new covenant in Him is greater than the old covenant through them? Well, it's because out of this host of seven Old Testament quotations emerges a picture of Jesus that is nothing short of majestic. Just follow along with me. Verse 5, He's the only begotten Son of God. Verse 6, He's the one whom the angels worship. Verses 8 and 9, He's the King who reigns in righteousness upon the throne of His kingdom. Verse 10, He's the Creator who laid the foundations of the earth and formed the heavens with His hands. Verses 11 and 12, He's the one who remains unchanged forever, even as the creation that He Himself created will be rolled up like a garment and changed. Verse 13, He's the King before whom no enemy can stand and who will reign victorious over all. Beloved, we need the picture of Jesus presented in the second half of Hebrews 1. 
if the warning of next week is going to have any weight. We need the picture of Jesus presented this week if the warning next week is going to have any teeth. Because next week I'm going to stand behind the same pulpit and I'm going to say, don't you dare turn away from this Jesus. And you need to know who this Jesus is so that you wouldn't even dream of turning away from him. The point of the book of Hebrews is how can you turn away from this Jesus? And we need to know who this Jesus is because the quickest way to drift away from your faith, drifting off into eternal destruction, is to take your eyes off this Jesus. The quickest way to neglect the salvation, the great salvation found only in Him, is to forget the glory of the only begotten Son of God that's presented to us live and in living color in Hebrews chapter 1. So I encourage you, for the sake of our joy, and for the sake of our worship, and for the sake of our endurance, and for the sake of our salvation, let's fix our eyes on this Jesus the Jesus of Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, and just stand in awe of Him. The author of Hebrews introduces the subject of angels beginning in verse 4. They kind of come out of nowhere. And then in verse 4, after, after He has been seated, after this Jesus has made purification for sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the author says, that he has become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. All right, that's the main point, the main thesis of today's passage. Jesus is better than the angels because he has inherited a more excellent name. Everything that follows is a defense of that point. So what is this supremely excellent name that Jesus has inherited? Most commentators think it's the name Son because of the way in which the author immediately begins to prove the unique sonship of Christ. But I think something a little different. I think, I think that Hebrews 1.4 sounds a lot like other passages that we have in Scripture. For instance, it sounds like Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 21 that speak of the name of Jesus. In that passage, Paul says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Likewise, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, for this reason also God has highly exalted him and has granted to him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Reminds me of Revelation 19 and verse 16, which says that Jesus, upon his glorious return, will have on his robe and on his thigh a name which is written. And that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My point is not to identify that name. And I don't think the precise identification of this name, is it king, is it lord, is it son? I don't think that's the important point. The point which the author is making is that this name represents supremacy. It is above every name that is named. He is king of kings. 
He is Lord of lords. At the mention of His name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses His Lordship. His name represents supreme majesty, supreme power, supreme authority, supreme honor and glory which transcends all creatures, even the angels. And then the author in verses 5 to 14 is going to set out to prove that. And I see in these verses four reasons why the name Jesus has inherited is more excellent than that of the angels. Four reasons. I want to point them out to you briefly. First, I want you to see that the author is going to establish the superior sonship of Jesus. In verse 5 he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Two quotations. The first one from Psalm 2, the second one from Psalm seven, or 2 Samuel 7. Now, it is true that he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Well, it's true that in the Old Testament, there's two or three occasions in which the angels of God are referred to as the sons of God. One thinks of Genesis 6, 2, Job 1, 6, Psalm 29, 1. But never like this. Both of these references, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, are messianic. And they speak of a unique sonship possessed by this Messiah, this messianic king, who has a unique relationship to the God of Israel. And kingship. And this unique sonship are never attributed to angels. The first reference is from Psalm 2 in verse 7. It's a messianic psalm that looks ahead to, to the King of Israel, the Messiah who is to come, who is called the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Christ in Psalm 2 too. And throughout this psalm we get a picture of the nations and the peoples and the kings of the earth are taking their stand against God and against His Christ, but the God who is in the heavens, He looks down upon this and He laughs and He says, I have established My King in Zion. And then He turns and He addresses this King and He says, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. And the event which He is speaking of, the today of that verse, is the event of this Messiah's coronation. The day of His victory. It's a reference to the resurrection and ascension and session of Jesus Christ upon the throne of His kingdom. It's the day of Jesus' coronation as King of heaven. You're my son. The second reference in verse 5 comes from 2 Samuel 7 where the Lord is making His covenant with David. Remember, David wants to build him a temple and he says, you're not going to build me a temple, but a son of yours will build me a temple. Furthermore, he will reign forever upon the king throne of Israel and he will be my son and I will be a father to him. So we have these two messianic references. And the author is using these two and he's saying, such things were never spoken of angels. So how is the name in which Jesus has inherited more excellent than that of the angels. Well, according to the author here in verse 5, it's only Jesus that God has called Son with a capital S. It's only Jesus that God has called Son in the sense of these passages. Angels, they're sons of God with a lowercase s. 
We, the saints, we're children of God, but we're not the only begotten Son. And we're not the Son to whom is attributed kingship and an everlasting reign. The word son used in this capacity conveys the idea of sovereignty and kingship and a throne and a reign that never ends. Ideas that would never be connected with angels, much less men. But which is connected to Jesus in all of its glory at the announcement of the angel to Mary. Do you remember? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen for it. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And his kingdom shall have no end. Only Jesus. He has a unique sonship. One that is vested with all sovereignty and all glory. And a reign that never ends. Second, the author establishes his superior status. Verses 6 through 9, he says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels wind and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. He's drawing two contrasts in verses 6 through 9. Right? Verse 6 is a quotation from Psalm 97, 7. And it's a contrast that is drawn between the angels who worship God and the one the angels worship. So we turn back to Psalm 97 and we find that This is a psalm that is speaking of the majesty and the glory and the power of the Lord who reigns as king over all the earth. Lord in all caps, meaning Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. For instance, Psalm 97.9 says, For you, O Lord, O Yahweh, most high over all the earth, you are exalted above all gods. Which is really interesting. Because the author, I want you to notice, he is not the least bit hesitant to take a psalm which explicitly is praising the God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, for being exalted above all things, for having absolute sovereignty and absolute power and absolute glory. Which tells you something about the way that the author thought of Jesus. This Jesus is that God. With equal power and equal majesty and equal glory and equal sovereignty. Equally deserving of the worship of angels. Second, when God brought his firstborn into the world, you remember he did this. He commanded the angels to worship him. So we find the multitudes of the heavenly host appearing to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem as glory breaks out into the the night sky. And they're singing glory to God in the highest. An event which the early church knew much about. The incarnation of the Son of God. So his point is clear in using Psalm 97. He's saying the angels of God worship this one. 
this Jesus. And the lesser always worships the greater. The angels worship Jesus because Jesus is superior to the angels. In fact, the angels worship Jesus because Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then in verses 7 to 9, he provides a second contrast between Jesus and the angels. And this is with regard to their respective status. Verse 7 is a quotation from Psalm 104.4. And it establishes that the angels are the ministers of God. Okay? He makes them winds and he makes them flames of fire. And he sends them out to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Okay? So you got, the, you got the image here? The angels are the servants of the king who sits upon the throne. But then he's going to turn right around in verses 8 and 9. He's going to identify who it is who sits upon the throne and commands the angels. Jesus, the Son, according to verses 8 and 9. He is the one who sits on the throne and commands the angels. And so he quotes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, which is another psalm understood to be clearly messianic. The Messiah, whom the author is now identifying as Jesus, and whom he calls God. Did you catch that? Your throne, O God, Whose throne? Jesus' throne. So don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and tell you that the early church had a lower Christology than we have today. And this, uh, that this idea of the Trinity didn't arise until the third century. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Of whom does the, does the psalmist speak that? Verse 8. Of the Son. The Messiah whom the author identifies as Jesus and whom he calls God is seated upon a throne that is eternal. And he holds forth the scepter of righteousness. Right? Because of his obedience, he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. This King, this Messiah is anointed and exalted above all. It's an incredible picture of the Son's sovereign and righteous reign and of the Father's delight to have Him crowned Lord of all and worshipped by all. Okay, So we wrap up verses 6-9 through nine, we take these two contrasts and we put them together and we say, you know, the author's point now becomes clear. Jesus is greater to the angels. Why? Because the angels are the worshippers of Jesus and the worshippers are always lesser than the one who is worshipped. And number two, Because the angels are the servant of the king and Jesus is the king and the angels are the servants and the servants are lesser than the king. But third, the author establishes the superior nature of Jesus. Verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will come or will not come to an end. All right, the contrast set forth in this section, which is a quotation of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, is between Jesus, the eternal, unchanging creator, and his ever changing, perishing creation of which angels are a part. Got it? As in Hebrews 1 2, When the author identified Jesus as the one through whom 
the world was created, through whom God made the world. Again, the author here at the end of chapter 1 is identifying Jesus as the one who laid the earth's foundations and formed the heavens with his hands. And while all of this creation is, is wearing down, deteriorating, perishing, and groaning in the pains of childbirth, as Paul says in Romans 8, this Jesus remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, verse 12 declares that the same Jesus who laid the earth's foundations and flung the stars into space will one day roll up creation like a worn-up garment before He makes all things new. Angels can't stand. They cannot stand before this eternal, creating, regenerating Son of God. They cannot stand in His presence. That's why they are prostrate before Him. They're the creation and He's the Creator. They're the servants and He's the King. They're the worshipers and He's the worshipped. Finally, the author establishes the superior destiny of Jesus. But to which of the angels has He ever said, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Final quotation is from Psalm 110 and verse 1, which is a verse that receives a lot of attention in the New Testament. Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1 and Colossians 3, and Jesus himself in Matthew 22 all take this verse and apply it to him, to Christ. It is a psalm which declares the absolute victory of this messianic king in an image in which he's seated upon the throne and all of his enemies are brought forth and he's putting his feet on their necks. They are his footstool. He will conquer all of his enemies and reign forever. The supremacy of this Jesus is absolute. There are no competitors to his throne. Even the angels with all of their glory and honor and power bow before the throne of Christ and worship Him forever. But what of the angels? Are we denigrating the angels now? Are we just disregarding them? No. They remain the servants of this conquering King. Sent out as His ministers to accomplish His purpose. Which is stated here in verse 14 as the salvation of people like us. We who will inherit salvation. The angels are the servants of God on behalf of us. Isn't that what we see them doing throughout the pages of Holy Scripture? They were the army that was that was sent out to save Elisha and his servant when the Syrians had surrounded the city of Dothan. And the servant is quaking in his boots and he can't see how they're ever going to escape this. And Elisha is sitting there calm And and he says, do you not see them? And the servant says, see what? And Elisha prays that his eyes would be opened and the the eyes of the servant are open. And he says, I behold the mountains full of horses and chariots of fire. And Elisha says, so fear not because those who are with us is greater than those who are with them. It was the angels who announced Jesus' birth telling the shepherds of Bethlehem where they might go to to find and to worship and to believe upon their Savior. 
It was the angels who were standing outside and inside the tomb of Jesus who are greeting the first witnesses to his resurrection. They're saying, why do you search for the, the living among the dead? He is risen. He is not here. It's the angels who turn around and comfort the, the, the disciples when they're standing on the Mount of Olives 40 days later and they're looking up into the sky and they're kind of sad because they thought they had Jesus and now he's gone. And the angels turn around and say, men, why are you standing looking into the sky? The same Jesus whom you saw ascend will descend in the very same way. Now go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. It was the angels who freed Peter from prison in Acts chapter 12. It was the angel who stood by Paul in the midst of the shipwreck and comforted him and assured him of his safety. It is the angel who takes the Apostle John on his journey through the visions of Revelation. In fact, at the very end in Revelation chapter 22, when John is so overwhelmed that he falls on his face and begins to worship the angel, the angel says, stop it. Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. They are the servants of God. They are the ministers of the King for our benefit, for the benefit of those who will inherit salvation. So what do we do with this chapter? Well, I want to close by giving you three exhortations which I think arise very clearly out of it. Number one, the Jesus presented in Hebrews 1 is an eternal unchanging, omnipotent, sovereign Savior. So what do we do with Him? We do what the author tells us to do with Him and we consider Him. Hebrews 12. Consider Him. Fix your eyes upon Him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Because there are some of you who come in this morning and your heart's cold. Distant. Your prayers are weak. Your worship is joyless. Your faith is struggling. The Bible is no longer to you the word of the living Christ, but dead words on a worn out page. And you need a renewed vision of this Jesus. It is Him you worship. It is to Him you pray. When you bow your knees in the morning and you feel as if your prayers are ascending no further than the ceiling eight feet over your head, you need to be reminded that it is this Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and His ear is not so dull that He cannot hear and His arm is not so short that He cannot save. He hears and He saves all who come to Him. And you need to be reminded of that this morning. These are His words. And therefore, they can't just be set aside. And therefore, we can trust Him when He says, these are words of life. This is bread for the soul. You say, I, I, I read it and I don't feel like it's bread. And I don't feel revived. And I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't and the Spirit of the living Christ has said, these are my words. I who sit on the throne have spoken. And you need to be reminded of that. 
If your love has grown cold and your faith has grown weak, then the study of Hebrews is just the book for you. And so my prayer for you this morning and and my encouragement for you to pray when we enter into our time of worship is that God would open up your eyes and would renew your heart to see and to worship this Jesus so that your soul would be anchored to Him that you do not drift away. Having a cold heart is a dangerous thing and you need to awaken to the danger and anchor yourself again to the Jesus of chapter 1. That's exhortation number one. Consider him. Exhortation number two. Trust him. Just as Jesus is infinitely greater than the angels, even so is the gospel he brings in the new covenant infinitely greater than the law given through the angels in the old. Now, I would, I, I would venture to guess, as I said earlier, that none of you are going to go out from here into your backyard and sacrifice a lamb for your sins. And you're not going to hop on a plane and go to Jerusalem and wait for the temple to be rebuilt so that, so that the priests can minister to you and intercede on your behalf. But I am willing to bet that there are many of you here who are tempted to doubt the message of the gospel which says that Jesus has made a full and complete atonement for your sins and has sat down because it is finished. You are tempted to turn away from this covenant of grace and from a finished atonement and to hop back on the treadmill of your works where you're constantly going and constantly doing and constantly active if only God will love you today. And that's why you come here so exhausted in your Christian life. So I say to you, trust this Jesus because He's seated, because He's finished, because it's perfect, it's been accomplished, and you can rest in Him. He is the perfect high priest who has offered a perfect sacrifice of atonement. And so I exhort you this morning to a gutsy faith which says, I'm not going to worry anymore if I've been good enough. And I'm not going to run out here in ceaseless activity anymore trying to earn his favor. I'm going to take my seat at the feet of this Jesus who is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him in faith. Trust Him because He is trustworthy. That's why Hebrews 1 is here. He's trustworthy. So trust Him. You are not condemned this morning, believer. I don't know what, you you don't know what I did last night. No. But He does. And furthermore, He shed His blood for it on the cross. Rest in Him. Breathe in the air of free grace and finished atonement that is screaming out of the pages of Hebrews. Rest. Trust Him. And do not, do not, do not turn back from this gospel because you think it's too good to be true and there's just got to be something else to it. Something you're not telling me. Do not Resist him who calls and do not turn away and neglect so great a salvation.
Consider Him. Trust Him. And number three, very simply, don't worship angels. Worship the one whom the angels worship. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall. Hail Him who saves you by His grace and crown Him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to Him all majesty ascribe and crown Him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at His feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown Him Lord of all. Our Jesus Our Savior, our King, our great High Priest, the author and the finisher of our salvation, we worship you this morning. We recognize you have been crowned Lord of all. You will be recognized as Lord of all. Every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here this morning, September the 14th, 2014, we joyfully and willingly bow our knees and confess with our mouths that you are Lord in worship and in praise of the Jesus who has saved us. Come, send your spirit. Make worshipers this morning of those who are not. Make believers this morning of those who are not. Make seers and understanders this morning of those who are blind and uncomprehending. Come and do your sovereign work in the midst of your people this morning and cause us to rise up in exaltation. All hail the power of Jesus' name. That is the cry of the church. That's why we have hope and certainty and assurance in an uncertain world. You are on your throne, the only begotten Son of the living God who created all things and sustains all things by the word of your power. Be worshipped in the midst of your people. We pray in Jesus' name.